Welcome to Kansas City Real Talk, brought to you by KCRAR. I'm Bobby Howe. I'm Alex Scary. Bobby, we almost started at the same time. We Except you started the last episode, so it was my turn to start. It's true. This it's is true. true. How Except are you? there's an episode in between, so I don't know. Um, it's been a, I'm not going to lie, it's been a little bit of a stressful morning making it here to our recording, because now, granted, this episode doesn't release till sometime in July, we're actually ahead of the game for once in our lives. And it's like late June and yeah. we had a bunch of flooding here overnight. Um, we had a little bit of water in our house, which was fine because we had an actual flood like five years ago. Just come to discover there was never any French drain tile installed around our house. We did all that, whatever. But every single neighbor that I've talked to has just a, about a quarter of an inch of water in their wow. entire basement. Um, up here in St. Joe, we got somewhere between, um, eight to 10 inches of rain since about eight o'clock in about 12 hour time frame. probably not even, not even 12 hours, maybe like 10 hours. Um, we got at one point last night, I took a video of it. Uh, our gutters could not keep up with how fast the rain was coming down. And it was just like a waterfall over the edge of the house because it was just coming down, um, so fast, um, and so everybody's checking on their listings. Like I, yeah. I had a house that just went live earlier in the week. My people are down in Kansas city and I'm like, you need to get up and check your basement. I can't get there right now. Cause I'm doing this. Um, but so they're driving up there. I have a listing going live next week. And so I'm texting them. How's your basement? Are you okay? Um, but yeah, and we have, um, so our, my son's elementary school is slightly outside of town. It's actually surrounded on three sides by cornfields yeah. and absolutely love it. Even though it's a city school, it's out in the country. Um, but the highways going out to it are flooded. You can't get there. So they had to relocate summer school to a different school today. Oh my gosh. And we have just been getting nothing but text today of like, don't go on this street. It's flooded. Don't go on this road. It's I'm wow. like, literally we can't leave our house today. Everything around us is flooded. Bobby, it's so crazy. Cause we got nothing. Absolutely, yeah. like nothing uh, compared to you guys. I mean, maybe we got like a little bit of rain, but it was hardly yeah. anything. Um, our own president, Tony Conant, his brother just sold his house here in St. Joe. The house was in a floodplain, well disclosed to everyone. It was a part of everything. The house is in a floodplain. But during the 11 years they owned the home, the house only flooded once. I just got a picture of it this morning. The house is flooded again. Oh my gosh. And I'm just like, I feel horrible for that buyer. I'm, uh, I was, it wasn't my buyer, but I just, I feel horrible. Jeez. So, well, in yeah. that kind of what we go through that every time there's a big storm, yeah. well, uh, our, our, all, everybody that we've ever sold a house to freaks out. Yep. <laughs> and, and that's the thing is, you know, people freak out and they say the seller never disclosed that water gets in the basement. Seller and all, seller can people, disclose what they know. Yeah. And that's what I said. There is a first time that water gets in basements at some point in time. So just because you there have water be a today second time too. doesn't mean that it's never been there before or that right. it will ever come back. There's last night was a freak storm. Freak storms, freak things happen. Along with freak storms, another thing that uh, I don't know if you're experiencing or not, but just about every day I'm getting a call with an appraisal issue. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't know if that's just because I'm a little bit further south and we've got a lot of rural property and rural. they're rural. I love that word. Uh, rural. Uh, how, do, well, how do you say it, Bobby? Now I can't say it because uh -huh. there, right. there was a Saturday Night Live skit called The Rural Juror. And they like, they say it. It's like, it's, try to say it, rural juror. And you can't say it because it's rural juror. And it's, I went off on a tangent, but yes. Rural jeweler? 
ju- uh, juror, like sits in a jury. Oh, a rural juror. <laughs> wow. Rural juror. You should go look up the Saturday Night Live skit because it's actually pretty funny doing this. this in the 80s? Rural juror. Tell me about the 80s, Bobby. Oh, Did- you're so cute, Alex. Well, but anyway, so I've been having some appraisal issues yep. uh, here in our office. They've been popping up here and there. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm really excited because we're bringing on Mark Masker, who is on uh, the Heartland MLS board with me. And he is so wonderful. He's a great resource. Uh, he has spoken to uh, our office before um, to talk to us a little bit about appraisal issues uh, and how to combat them and those things in, in the past. Uh, he is a phenomenal resource uh, and so generous uh, with his time. He also teaches a class. I'm going to give a shameless plug for his class that he's taught before with KCRER. And one of the best things about Mark, and I, I don't want to give too much away, but one of the best things about Mark that I love is that he encourages encourages people to go to the appraiser or to go to the appraisal. He encourages agents to actually attend. Um, and so I'm really excited to talk to him and, and hopefully I can get some tips that I can bring back to, uh, to my agents. So um, I'm excited about that. Bobby, are you guys experiencing any appraisal issues right now? I don't want to jinx myself by answering that question. I gotcha. I don't I gotcha. want to, I'm well, answering. I, I've got a lot Rude. to say to Mark. I got a lot to say to Mark about it because I, I, I think there, there, are, there are a number of uh, issues that we're, that we're uh, facing right now regarding appraisals. And uh, I'm curious if uh, his thoughts are, are similar to mine um, and, and how we might be able to fix the problem. Because I'll just be honest, most of the time, uh, I feel like these issues shouldn't have happened. Right. Um, it's, a uh, which that's how we always feel about appraisal yeah. issues, right? that's how we right. always feel. Um, but I, I'm right. Do you know why I'm excited <laughs> about this topic? Why? Because when we were sitting together in the airport the other day, you started talking about this topic. We talked about the fact we were going to be here. We were going to be talking about it. And I think it was a Kansas city appraiser who overheard you and came, started talking to you and was like, don't you be knocking on appraisers. So- and it was really funny. So actually he was, he's an Iola appraiser uh, and, and he is with uh, KAR. He is a super nice guy. He's been involved for a long time. Uh, He was, uh, anyway, we we had a long, a good long conversation. To be fair, actually, he agreed with me about the problems that I think that the appraisal industry uh, is facing. I think he was just giving me a hard time when he came over and said, don't be knocking on appraisers. Uh, but but we had- but a, I just thought it was funny. We talk about appraisers and then there's one there, you know, just like, <laughs> hey, here we are. All I was saying was that we had some, I didn't even say anything negative about appraisers, but anyway. But it was funny as it was right after the lady corrected you about Mahi. Oh so- my gosh. So we were talking about hilarious. eating mahi in Florida and he's like, well, it's eating, you're eating a dolphin. And so like, I'm Googling, I'm like, it's a dolphin type fish, but it's not actual dolphin. And he's trying to sit here and tell me, oh, you're eating dolphin. You were eating dolphin. And it was a really good sandwich, by the way. And the lady behind me goes, leave her alone. It's not dolphin. Like some stranger. We don't even know. <laughs> then we talk about appraisers and it, like, that was the next topic. And that's when the appraiser shows up. And I was like, poor Alex. I'll tell you what, everybody was, was putting their thumb on my fun at that airport. I mean, I here I was giving Bobby a hard time and then I was giving appraisers a hard time and everybody kept on stopping me. It was not cool. The worst part though <laughs> is that uh a Bobby Bobby chimed in 
And she's like, yeah, he's mansplaining dolphins to me or something. And then the, and then the gal behind us goes, I know. <laughs> she's like, I'm sticking up for her. And she was very serious. And I was like, oh, but I was just kidding. I was giving her a hard time. I didn't really think she was eating dolphins. I don't want her to really think that. Mm-hmm. Oh, anyway. yep, I did. I called Alex out for his mansplaining and she was, she was right there with me. It was, hu- oh my gosh. It was a very fun moment in the, the airport. So yeah, guess what I have on this episode? Oh, uh, another one. Another one. Another one. <laughs> that was Are we changing my, up the song? I'm really concerned it was going to turn into a rap song there for about five seconds. That was my DJ Khaled impression. It was, it wasn't very good. <laughs> it wasn't good. Another one. That's I. I does he do anything else other than I think say we should get to the another book bit one before before we just delve way down and Amber has to cut all this. I think we should just probably get to the book bit at this point. Okay. Do 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 do. Bobby's book bit. Casey. Rar. Um. So we since we uh, we've talked about it, we're just still freshly back from Florida. Another one of the speakers that was um at President's Circle is a historian and author. Doris Kearns Goodwin, who is, God, she's just adorable, right? She was amazing. Yes. Yeah. She was amazing. So I'm doing one of her books, um, one of her more popular books, and it's called Team of Rivals. And I I really think it's important, given the political climate that we're in today, to talk about this book. So it explains how Abraham Lincoln rose above his political rivals, despite their stronger reputations, and how he used empathy to unite just his enemies, but an entire country. So we were very divided and Lincoln really brought us together. And that's what the book is about. Um, One of the quotes from the book is knowing why we get up in the morning is one of the greatest antidotes to the downs in life. And I I really kind of, I like that quote a lot because we got to know why we're getting up in the morning or else we'll just stay down. We talk about our why all the time. We do. Absolutely. So as always, three lessons from the, the story. Number one, we all know Lincoln was born in a tough time, but his personal hardships ran much deeper. And and the book talks a lot about his personal and his growing up. And it talks about how his father did not care that Abe wanted to educate himself. Being illiterate himself, he didn't see the benefits of learning. He thought it would only distract Abe from doing his chores. And he was so opposed to his son's reading that he even burned Abe's books. But it talks about one trait that he did pass down to um, his son was his love of storytelling. Abraham kept his audience engaged and entertained with pointed anecdotes, humorous tales, and inspiring parables. The difficulties he had did not break his spirit, but it hardened him and spurred him on to make him something great of himself. And the lesson is to let the challenges make us better, not bitter. We all have personal challenges in our life, but learn from those and grow from them and make you a stronger person. The second one was, um, despite being far from the top choice as a Republican nominee, Lincoln won in a true-to-life tortoise and hare story. And it talks about there was three other main rivals against him um, when he was running as the Republican nominee for president. And if you've ever studied Lincoln, he he lost every election until right before he won president. Like he just he was a political failure. Um, But it said he was one David against three Goliaths. But while his rivals were overly confident and made enemies within their own party, Lincoln remained clear and consistent in his anti-slavery stance. Instead of antagonizing people through his entire career, he made friends wherever he went. His persistence and decisiveness eventually led him to victory. 
he had a stance, he stuck with it, and he made friends along the way as opposed to trying to divide people even more. Kind of crazy. Which leads to the third lesson is because of his unusual yet effective leadership style, even Southerners felt his death was a tragic blow to the reconstruction of the United States. His victory in the election was a testimony to his genius and intelligence as a politician. Listen to this. Most people in a leadership position will surround themselves with like-minded company. Lincoln, however, picked the most qualified people, regardless of their former party affiliation. He surrounded himself with a group of ambitious thinkers, not friends and allies who would blindly support his opinion, a team of rivals, if you will. And I think that's such an important thing is that as leaders, we do tend to surround ourselves with people that will support whatever agenda that we have so that we can help advance that as opposed to going out and finding the most qualified people for those positions and sometimes hearing something that we don't want to hear, but that we need to hear. Um, And then the other thing with this book is you're probably just going to want to listen to it on Audible because it is a 945 page book. So it's a nice, big, long one, but hey, I want to read it. Doris Kearns Goodwin. She's an amazing historian and author. So you know, that was my book bit. A quick aside before we bring Mark on. Yep. I Maybe we've talked about this. I am having a hard time with audiobooks right now. Is that is that weird? I don't know what it is, but I used to be able to listen to uh, pod or to listen to uh, audiobooks all the time when I was mm-hmm. driving. Yep. I cannot do it anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on. And I'll be honest, I'm also having a hard time uh, uh, like switching back to reading physical books. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I don't know, it's been, it's been weird. I don't know why this is happening to me. Have you experienced like yeah. a issue with audiobooks before? Yeah, I, I, I have to be in the right mood for audiobooks to begin with. Uh, back when I was driving back and forth from Kansas City every day, I could kind of get into a groove. But especially lately, I've even tried to having some downtime here. Well, back when it was just me and the puppy and we'd hang out in the yard for a couple hours a day, you know, doing whatever. Um, I would try to do an audiobook then. I just feel like there's so much chaos and so much constantness in our world that when I try to plug into an audiobook, I'm more it it, it gives yep. me a moment of quiet. And then I focus on all the other things versus the words that are being said. Exactly. And I, I, we'll, all of a sudden, 20 minutes will pass and I'll go, shoot, um, what was just said? Because I was so lost in my own thoughts. I have no idea what was said in the book. Yep. Um, I do do better right now. Right, right now, I'm going through a fiction phase and I can kind of get lost in that story. But even nonfiction books, I find myself getting distracted if I'm trying to read them. And I have a huge stack that's like staring at me on my shelf here in the office of nonfiction books I want to read and talk about on the podcast. But I'm finding myself, I need to get lost and taken away from whatever's actually going on. Bobby, you bring up a really good point. And I'm hoping that you just inspired me a little bit because I have not tried to read fiction for a long time. So I'm wondering if my uh, stagnation in terms of reading is more what you just said, that, that when I'm doing something like that, I'm wanting an escape. And yep. the type of content I'm digesting isn't giving me a uh, well, ingesting rather is not giving me an escape. So, well, because a lot of this content we're forced to think about and understand. And it's like, if we, our brains are already so full of stuff that we can't take it in. And so I'm finding myself with the fiction books. I can just get lost in their story, what's going on in their world. And it lets me get away from whatever's going on in our world right now for that yeah. moment. 
Well, so I'm going to try it. Hey, I may you. have a fiction book bit coming up just because that's what I've been reading. I don't know. Today, today you had a book bit and a book tip. <gasps> I did. All right, should we bring on Mark? Yes, please. All right. Welcome back to Kansas City Real Talk, brought to you by KCRAR. We're here with Mark Mashker. And Mark, it is so good to have you with us. I was just saying in our introduction that this is a really important topic right now because we are seeing quite a few appraisal issues in our marketplace, it seems. Uh, so perfect timing, especially while this market has been you know, pushing appreciation uh, to its, uh, probably its limits, uh, maybe. So, so thank you for being with us today. Well, glad to be here. And of course, we're experiencing all of that from the other side. So it's a mm -hmm. valuable conversation for appraisers too. Absolutely. Well, well, thank you so much for being with us. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do, a little bit about your company um, and uh, what got you into uh, the appraisal business? Well, I'm happy to. I um, started this journey about 21 years ago when I decided to become an appraiser after selling a business. And uh, it was an interesting situation. I had an appraiser come to my house to appraise our property. And I thought, hey, you know, struck a genius, maybe that's it for me. So I started taking classes and, uh, and realized, I think before that, that I have kind of an analytical background and, and capability, and I thought it would be a good fit. And so as it turned out, <clears throat> I did what most people uh, do, and I submitted to uh, uh, a heavy class load that lasted about a year. And uh, on top of that, started trying to find someone to train me. Appraising is different than almost any other profession because we have to uh, go through an apprenticeship. And that means that we have to find someone else who is certified to train us. And that, that is far and away the hardest part of becoming an appraiser. In fact, I, I joke, but it's not even funny, uh, that most people who become appraisers uh, become appraisers through nepotism. It's very common to see a second and third generation appraiser. Uh, I'm first generation and my son is now working for me. So let's see how that turns out. But it's, uh, it's difficult to become an appraiser because who wants to train their competition, right? We'll train our kids to do it, but we won't often train somebody who would open up across the street. And so there's a certain control that appraisers have uh, that works for appraisers once you get inside and become certified. So I spent 10 years exclusively uh, doing residential property all over Kansas City. And uh, that experience ranged from being uh, both an employee of an appraisal company, the owner of an appraisal company, and then a role inside of Bank of America where I was a regional chief appraiser. Uh, so that takes us up to the recession, and thereafter, we had this timeline uh, called HBCC in April of 2009, and that was a day that many, many appraisal management companies were birthed. Uh, there was a regulation that kept that said appraisers, after all we had been through uh, in the mortgage meltdown, that there needs to be a separation between the appraisers and the people who are benefiting from appraisals, the loan officers and that sort of thing. So banks, uh, mortgage companies and all of that had to come up with a solution, they had to come up with a uh, third party uh, solution or an in-house solution that allowed them to manage appraisals with a certain independence. So we started a company called uh, Appraisal Bridge, which is now Appraisalytics. And that company uh, is just such one of those companies. It's a smaller regional version that covers Missouri and Kansas 
and a number of lenders in Kansas City. And what we do is we, we essentially assign orders to other appraisers. We train appraisers uh, if there's a competency gap and we manage the quality control uh, and the invoicing, the vendor management and all of that. The other thing that I do, uh, about 10 years ago, I started working toward becoming a commercial appraiser. So somewhat uniquely, I juggle both types of uh, appraising, um, the full spectrum with a team of about six folks uh, under the Williams Group here in Lee Summit. So uh, I am both a practicing appraiser and someone who is a manager of appraisals, uh, appraisers and someone who advises banks on the regulatory environment. So I think I did that a lot faster than I expected, but that in a nutshell is what I do for a living. you got a lot of hats, Mark. Yeah, yeah, I That's do. Good. Well, and actually, you, you stumbled upon what one of my first questions was going to be, because I, I am of the belief, and, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, that one of the difficult things we're experiencing right now is a, a extreme shortage of appraisers. And uh, you have talked a little bit just now about the barrier of entry for getting a license to be an appraiser. Do you feel like the time has come for the board of appraisers. Is that right? The board of appraisers Did I make up that entity. Is that something that exists? Uh, it'll work. It'll it's, work. Uh, okay. Missouri real estate commission and the Kansas real estate appraisal board. Okay. Got it. Well, we need to look at it. Am I incorrect that maybe we need to look at uh, making it easier for people to get into uh, that business? Well, I think we, we do. Uh, with everything that we do in this way, uh, there are unintended consequences, and I think we're living with some of those now. But uh, some would argue, usually appraisers, that there's not necessarily a shortage of appraisers, but a shortage of work, uh, of people who want to do the mortgage-type appraisal. Uh, <clears throat> even though the majority of residential people make their money doing residential appraisals for mortgage companies, banks, et cetera, um, that work has become more and more scrutinized, more and more managed, if you will, and more and more regulated to the point that many appraisers are opting out. Um, I do believe, though, that there is a shortage because the average age of appraisers in the country is 61 or two, I believe, the last time I checked. And, I think that's uh, higher than the average age of realtors in the country. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Which is crazy. Well, a few years ago, <laughs> I think it was 2018, the uh, regulations uh, or the requirements to become an appraiser were lowered substantially such that instead of it being a two to three year period of time to become certified, someone can do it uh, much in half the time. And <clears throat> that is a, is a good thing, I think, for the most part, is, as it really only impacts the residential side. I'd hate to hire an appraiser to do commercial work who'd only been working for a year and a half. Um, but on the residential side, there's an argument to be made that not only can someone with a year and a half of experience, maybe two years, of experience become quite competent in that amount of time. Um, there's also something new happening in the industry, and that is this idea of bifurcated appraisals, where the appraiser is at the desk doing a remote appraisal uh, where someone else has inspected the property. And there's a, there's a pilot program going on right now with Fannie and Freddie that attempts to solve the shortage of appraisers by allowing appraisers to do more from their desk and depend on others, non-licensed, appraisers 
they could be home inspectors and oftentimes they're real estate agents uh, who are out shooting the pictures and using uh, data collection technology to deliver that to the appraiser. So there are a lot of things, Alex, happening right now in the industry that are addressing the shortage. And I, and I think that we will be in a new world very quickly uh, with regard to the, the number of people we have involved in the appraisal process. The yep. last point I would say is that since our, our geographic coverage is grown uh, and we're representing more and more rural counties, that the shortage would be more evident there for sure than it would be right here in Kansas City. You know, Mark, I, I'm glad that you're addressing that because, you know, one of the first things you brought up was talking about your apprenticeship and nepotism and all of that. And what's interesting is Alex and I just traveled together two days ago when we were sitting in the airport and we were kind of discussing this topic. And I had a family member who tried to become an appraiser for about two years. I live up in St. Joe, so we're a little bit up. And this family member contacted every single appraiser in St. Joe wanting to do an apprenticeship with them. None of them would agree to do it because you're going to come take my job. Then they called 10 to 15 appraisers in the Kansas City area. Again, over a two-year time frame, could get no one to agree to apprenticeship. And it seems it's, it's kind of frustrating that the people that are already in the industry can be the gatekeepers to now who gets to join the industry and do that, that there's not some separate like for paid apprenticeship that can be done by an outside third party. Um, so I think that's led to it, but I'm glad to see that there's something coming from it. Um, but well, I'll just say, Bobby, uh, my experience, both in becoming residential and commercial, uh, 10 years apart required me to buy a company. Yeah. So since I didn't have a relative in the business, I found someone who was looking to retire yeah. um, and, and worked out a succession. And most people who hadn't had business experience wouldn't know or think to do that. So no, I, I can guarantee you this is not something that family member that would have ever crossed their mind to, to buy someone out in order to be able to get into the industry. Right. Um, so how is your work as an appraiser? And I'm going to say both commercial and residential um being affected by on the residential side the lack of inventory the the tight market versus on the commercial side some areas of commercial didn't do as well during the covid times and everything we went through through the last year so how is your work being affected by the current world environment we're in oh it's a great question it's uh on the residential side this environment we're in with the extreme shortage of property is doubly difficult on appraisers because as you might Recall, we depend on retrospective evidence to come up with a value today, right? We can't forecast, by the way. So we have no crystal balls in our process. And so when we look back and look at uh, a number of sales that have occurred in the last year inside of any given neighborhood, we're going to have usually an insufficient number compared to normal marketplace situation. Um, we're also not going to have any active or pending. Uh, and if we're lucky, we'll have one or two. Um, and in declining markets and in appreciating markets, Fannie, Freddie, FHA usually come in with some uh, uh, well-timed guidance uh, advising appraisers to include actives and pendings as an example. But in a declining market, there's an abundance of that kind of evidence. But in, a, in an increasing market, we don't have enough evidence at all to come up with value, uh, especially those values that are reaching beyond the current value uh, and exceeding not only the, la the pricing in the last 12 months, but exceeding that substantially by 25 or 50 or $75,000 because of the uh, just extreme behavior by buyers desperate to get into a situation, into a house. So it affects us uh, you know, terribly to the point that we end up writing reports that uh, our underwriters that, that work for these lenders that we give these, get these orders from want more support. 
And of course we don't have it. Um, and we can't, of course, manufacture that evidence. We have to depend on empirical third-party evidence and we have to verify that evidence. And so it's really one hand behind our back in this current environment and appraisers are working very hard uh, to find evidence and they're hopefully, uh, and I think they are in this case, calling their agents in the area that might be involved or might be involved with recent sales uh, or those pending listings to get any information they can regarding you know, where those prices ended up. Mark, uh, I am so glad you said that. I'm going to interrupt you for just a second because I know that you guys try to call and guess what realtors do when you try to call them? They don't call us back. They don't call you back. They don't pick up the phone. Yeah. Guys, if you want appraisals to, to improve, you better pick up the phone when you've got a pending listing and they're calling to ask you about it. I Thank mean, that, we, we, we need it. Yeah. it they're, they're trying to do their job. They're trying to help us out. I always say, Alex, you know, if I'm going to guess, which way do you think I'll go? Uh, and so we don't often have the information, even from your listing, to know uh, all that went in on a, to a transaction. Believe me, we're busy. So we wouldn't call unless we had a question we couldn't answer from our normal due diligence. But it is a, a point that I make in my class, the one that I teach for you guys uh, on the appraisal process there. And I always say that you have to remember as, as agents and brokers that you are our database, that 90% of our comps come from MLS. And if we don't have the information or you all don't go back on these sold before listings and populate your listing, then I can't use that listing. Uh, because they don't have any detail about that property uh, for the next property that I'm appraising. And, you know, we cover six to 10 counties, depending on the size of the company we work with. Uh, farming, if that term is still relevant, means that the agent really uh, hones in on a market area that they want to be known in, right? A much smaller geographic territory. So you're the local expert in that geographic territory. I'm a generalist who might be in and out of that neighborhood every few months. Uh, so if I don't get that call back from you, very often it's going to be your next deal that's affected by that. Uh, so I, I, I certainly appreciate that and would beg the agents to recognize that we're desperate for data right now. Uh, and as much as there is, you know, available to us uh, with regard to Realist and the new tools and data downloads that we have access to, nothing matches the conversation that we can have with one of you in just a few minutes. So. Um we all know that homes are selling for over asking, sometimes yeah. ridiculously over. How is that affecting the valuation of a home? Because sometimes it feels like we are literally just pulling numbers out of an air, out of the air and hoping it sticks. The buyers and sellers agree with it, but there's no data to back right. it up. So well, and, how are we doing that? Yeah, and I didn't forget, Bobby, about the commercial part either. I'll get back to that. The um, the biggest issue for us is what we hear when when we have one of these situations. I'm dealing with one this morning where the list price was 350, where the highest sale in the neighborhood over 12 months was 330, contract price 375, um, and we've seen examples where the contract price in that scenario would be 400. Um, now I'm surprised that anyone is really expecting the value to come in at 375 or 400, but as appraisers, we analyze that, we report that on the first page and then we forget about it. And then we go looking for properties that aren't priced similar to that property that we're dealing with, but that are physically similar, locationally similar, all of that. <clears throat> and then we let the numbers tell us uh, what that value should be. And we're doing something today that we don't, hist we don't do unless we're in a market like this, which is to apply time adjustments. 
And that's us looking at uh, evidence today over the last 12 months and maybe comparing the 12 to 24 month period of time in that same neighborhood to see how much rates have gone up or how much the average price has gone up. Well, it's problematic because in some areas of our marketplace, those numbers show up as sell prices and we see a 24% rate of appreciation in a market. Well, appraisers don't acknowledge that or the all of that as appreciation. Uh, we look at that as behavior that is atypical in an atypical marketplace. Uh, that's extreme behavior. People paying uh, substantially more than a list price uh, is not well advised. Um, economics 101 uh, lasts forever, right? And even in a time of severe shortage, we believe at some point a correction to that shortage might occur, right? The builders will catch up. Uh, we might have uh, a change in the demand uh, for whatever reason. But until that happens, people are behaving in a way that is unusual. So we in our process um, also depend on um, underwriters having a certain flexibility around things like time adjustments. Uh, they tend to resist that. And I always try to remind agents and consumers who are upset with appraisers that if you think that this marketplace is yours, you're wrong. Uh, it belongs to somebody called Fannie Mae. And if we're involved, it isn't a cash sale. It's a, it's a mortgage sale, right? And so whatever uh, we're dealing with, whether it's uh, conventional, FHA, USDA, VA, each of those organizations have different underwriting guidelines that we have to abide by. Uh, and they have certain limitations that are very good, but those limitations generally point us away from emotional behavior and toward comparable uh, uh, comp selection that, that really reflects the subject. So, <clears throat> but the, the point I'm making in all of that is that <clears throat> we're also involved in a risk decision, right? Uh, and it's not our decision, it's not the agent's uh, decision, it's, it's again the lender who is uh, going to make this loan. Uh, and they're the ones ultimately, uh, if they were to stop, for instance, loaning uh, or were to raise interest rates or to regulate the industry in any way as they have before historically, uh, all of this could change very quickly. So we try to come up with a value that is that represents that appreciation, but one that that actually is is you know tied more to a reasonable uh, average of the deals that we can find to be more normal and less emotional. So on the commercial side, if, uh, just to get back to your point there, Bobby, we um, appraisers are required to maintain competency for the type of appraising they do. And so if you're a commercial appraiser juggling the range of stuff that we deal with in our practice, which could be a subdivision, it could be a, a retail strip center, it could be an office building, we have to be mindful that the retail and office environment may not be the same as the subdivision environment post-COVID. So it's really stressful for us right now to not only keep up with the volume, but to actually actively work to maintain uh, a reliable opinion based on, on work we're doing in the background to stay up to speed on uh, how this is impacting those property types. I, it, I mean, <laughs> I just, I, this, is, this is just a really valuable conversation right now, I feel like. I, 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 realtors need to understand what it is that you guys go through on a regular basis and how difficult this, this whole thing is. I wanna go back just a second to the idea that you just presented that I think is, is right. We've got to keep in mind 
that really this whole thing is a risk assessment. It's not a personal issue. It That's isn't right. the, it isn't your opinion of whether or not the, the market can, you know, is going out of control. That's not really what you're saying. The, the question is how much risk can somebody really, can, can the lending institutions really take on? And, uh, and you can't predict that, but you cannot vary from what the data is telling you. Is that really you know, what you're going They're to making about? a 10 to 15 to 30 year decision about this collateral. Uh, sure. We're living in the moment. And so they tend to uh, make those decisions uh, the way that they perceive or forecast uh, us coming out of this period of time. How long will it take for us to experience balance again? Uh, how long will it take to correct the, the undersupply? And people much smarter than us uh, are out there crunching these numbers on Wall Street. Uh, with a certain amount of accuracy. It's amazing um, because they're looking at all of the data, the universe of data nationwide and tying that to building costs, not localized, but supply chain kind of thinking. Um, and they're the ones ultimately who are the architects uh, of our local experience. Sure. So, so I've got two questions relating to that because all of that being said, you get realtors that are going to be... Uh, upset and obviously they should not be directing the fact that they're upset uh, about a low valuation at you all that is that is not the way that they should approach it but if they feel like something on the appraisal is incorrect um what is the best course of action well the reconsideration the appraisal process. Di appraiser directly yeah yeah thanks yeah. for that set it up do not call us. And the reason for that is uh, we've signed a document and more importantly, we're not working for anybody but the lender. Uh, it's really important to understand that. And what I, what I say in my class to realtors is, you know, if, how often does the 1004 appraisal report form uh, impact your deal? And we end up somewhere in the 90 to 95 range when we have a show of hands, because uh, I remind them that that covers conventional, FHA, USDA, VA, right? And even the local bank work, if they were to hold it on portfolio. So if this form uh, is the one that, that governs all appraisal activity uh, and, and eventually all of these mortgages, um, read it. And it will say in there, uh, it has several definitions, like the definition of market value, which answers a lot of these questions about the current environment and how we react to it. Uh, it also says who we work for. And we're, you might not realize this, but uh, we are somewhat like attorneys in this way. We have a lender client privilege uh, relationship. We can't do anything uh, without their permission. We can't send uh, uh, appraisals to someone else if they instruct it, or it, unless they instruct us to. There's just a number of things that we're not capable of doing without specific instruction. And it's also important to note who the lender really is. It's not the loan officer, right? It's the person that employs the loan officer and likely the person who, the people who employ the sales managers. Uh, so we're really mindful of what it means uh, to have a client and to protect that client relationship. So calling the appraiser to tell us that we screwed up is usually not the best way to do it. Um, but most lenders uh, have a reconsideration process and most of the regulators insist upon our cooperation in that process. And that gives uh, you all an opportunity to uh, 
find alternative evidence. And, and if the evidence that we chose is analyzed in a way that you think is flawed, that would be another reasoning for reconsideration. So new comps or uh, some indication that what we've come up with isn't right. Let's say we mismeasured um, the house or whatever. Those are typical reasons that uh, um, we see the reconsideration process. The other problem though with reconsideration, and I'm always kind of amazed by this, is that we get canceled listings, expired listings, pending sales, uh, you kind of follow me here, or we get sales that are three miles away and uh, uh, entirely different homes. Um, one of the funnest points I make about alternative evidence is, I don't know if we all learned this, I think it was probably taught to all of us in kindergarten, but if you ask a population of people or a room full of people, how far can you go for a comp? Everybody knows the answer, one mile. Um, well, it's not true. It's, you won't find it in any books. Um, you won't find it in any regulations. So I won't leave a neighborhood to find a comp just because it's priced higher. If I can find everything that I need to bracket, which means represent the subject property um, inside the neighborhood, it would be ultimately lacking credibility to go looking for value, right? Again, we're looking for property characteristics. So <clears throat> if there is something in that property that isn't represented in the local neighborhood, like a really great swimming pool, I will leave the neighborhood. And I always say I'll go as far as I have to, but no further than I have to. And there is no reason to say to the appraiser or to the lender, you're, you're sending the reconsideration uh, documentation back that this is within one mile. And that's the most common thing that we get from realtors. If I could correct that one thing before I retire, I will have changed the industry. So Mark, I wanna be respectful of your time and we're getting close to the end of time that we have asked for you. But the way that we always like to end the podcast is by asking, what else? What else should we have talked about? What else should, did we not ask you? Um, what tips do you have for realtors before we have to go to reconsideration, before you even get to the property? What are some tips that, that we should be doing to make sure that all, we get a melting of the minds and we stay out of emotional behavior? I thought that was a really key thing that you said is the risk analysis versus the emotional behavior. And that we're representing our, our client appropriately. Yes. Yes. Well, first of all, I, I remind the audience that I'm a broker as well, and I understand your obligations. Um, I am all for your advocacy. And, and so I always start maybe differently than some appraisers do from being defensive to saying and acknowledging, I understand that you've got a tough situation on your hands and um, that there's some degree of communication around that that we have to have. <clears throat> Keep a cool head. Um, you know, I, I, appraisers are analysts. Uh, we're scientific for lack of a better word. We're trained not to take it personally. Uh, so you can walk up to an appraiser and chew them out and not see them flinch. So we get beat up all the time. I don't know why we volunteer to do this, but uh, at the end of the day, that reaction being tough on the appraiser or disparaging the appraiser uh, to the people involved is not good because ultimately you're gonna see us again. Um, <clears throat> the one thing I, I would remind you all of uh, is that appraisers working in Kansas City or in the surrounding Heartland MLS area uh, have all uh, agreed to the same ethical framework that you have. They're members actually of your association and in fact of NAR. Um, in addition to being accountable to appraisal regulations, uh, there's a number of obligations they have. Uh, 
in serving uh, your clients and in serving you as appraisers in the community. So think of them as being part of the family. And uh, our association has actually pulled appraisers together uh, a number of times in the recent past and reminded them that we see them that way. Uh, build a bridge, you're gonna see them over and over and uh, most of them would benefit from a good healthy conversation. The other thing I would say is that the unintended consequences of appraiser independence have kept us apart for the last 10 or so years. Uh, there's nothing wrong with having an appraiser to a lunch and learn or just to an annual appreciation uh, luncheon inside of your brokerage if it's somebody you see regularly. That's not the same thing as trying to influence the outcome. That's just a matter of staying connected, right, to the people that you're interacting with and depending on on a daily basis. So if there's anything I see in the realtor community that is unintended but is has consequences, it's the fact that we've become kind of a commodity. Um, and we're actually real life people, you know, sitting on the other side of the bleachers uh, at a baseball game with you. So <clears throat> I think we need to kind of rebuild the bridge uh, between us, especially in this tumultuous time. So think of ways in your local office to show some appreciation from time to time, if nothing else, a card signed by a bunch of agents uh, to a local uh, appraiser in your community might really make a difference. You know, I think you make a really good point. Too often as consumers, even in our regular lives, but especially as realtors, we only talk about things when they're negative. That dumb appraiser, that this, that. But we don't ever say like, we don't ever say thank you enough, especially the people that are integral partners in what we're doing here. So I will say it for you, even though we've never worked together. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, A, for being here, but helping educate our members to be better members. And for us, because we all have to work together. Everybody plays a role in getting the deal across the finish line. And we definitely can't do it without you and everyone like you. Well, thanks. I appreciate that, Bobby. All right. Well, I I don't have anything else. I think that, that we've, we've, we haven't covered the gamut. There's so many more things being covered, but I think for today, my brain's full. I don't know about you, Alex. I think this was great. I really appreciate you coming out, Mark. And, and so thank you so much. Uh, it, it means a lot. I know that it's going to mean a lot for our members and I, I love the tip of remember to thank you. And one thing that I'll add is that not only do you all have an obligation to us as fellow uh, NAR members, but uh, we have an obligation to you all too. That, right. that goes both ways. Um, and I think that's a really easy thing for, for people to forget. Well, I think, I think we're done. Well, perfect. Mark, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you today. Great, thank you guys.